Hello and welcome back to the fourth episode of Perspectives, a podcast where we explore geopolitical perspectives on today's challenges. In this episode, we will be talking about the European Union and its geopolitical situation. The European Union, or EU, is a political and economic union between 27 countries. It was officially established in 1993 with the Maastricht Agreements, reliances between European countries to create a free market and maintain European peace had already been in place since as early as 1957. In the last decade and a half, the EU has been subject to an economic, humanitarian, and populist polycrisis that has raised questions as to how the EU will face its future crises. To discuss the European Union with us today is guest Jana Pugliarin, head of the Berlin Bureau and Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations. Here is the conversation that she and I had. Jana, thank you very much for joining us today. I wanted to first ask you if you thought that there was a just balance between intergovernmentalism and supranationalism within the EU that you think would lead to a safeguarded and better positioned union. So looking at foreign policy, I think a problem for the EU and for its capacity to act um, has been, yeah, basically that the, the, the process is consensus-based, the, the, the decision-making process. And so the EU foreign policy remains a prerogative of the nation states. And with the Lisbon Treaty, which came into force in 2001, the original idea was to improve the coherence um, of the common foreign and security policy and to enhance the EU's capacity to speak with one voice um, internationally. And also uh, kind of some uh, important institutional reforms were done. The external action service was created. The position of the high representative was strengthened and some sort of institutionalized uh, web system of foreign policy consultation and cooperation had emerged in Brussels. Um, But at the same time, foreign policy decision-making is still intergovernmental and based on unanimity. And there is this ongoing lack of unity and consistency between the EU institutions and the member states and the member states' different national foreign policies. And so I think member states are still reluctant to hand over sovereignty and powers to Brussels. Uh, So therefore, what we see uh, as European foreign policy is often little more than the expression of the lowest common denominator and the EU is very slow in reacting and its external action is fragmented. And so I think that if we would be able to move forward here and to, um, there are some ideas like to uh, implement uh, majority voting, at least in in some cases, or um, yeah, something like this, that would, um, I think, improve things a lot. Thank you. So to stay on foreign policy, do you think that it's in the EU's best interest to have a common foreign policy with the US or go on its own path? Do you think that the new AUKUS pact affects the way the EU should see its relationship with the US and the reliability of NATO? And in that case, does a European Security Council make increasing sense? So I think that um, we as Europeans share many interests with the United States. And Strong transatlantic ties remain vital for the European Union, but that does not mean that we are always on the same page. Um, I mean, there are different positions 
there have been different positions in the past, kind of looking at the Trump years, for example, the, the JCPOA comes to mind. So overall, I think on many, on many issues, um, our interests align. Um, right. And definitely with the Biden administration, uh, we have seen much more alignment. But as you said, I mean, AUKUS and also the Afghanistan withdrawal have shown to Europeans, I think, that the United States is now really shifting towards Asia, prioritizing the Indo-Pacific. And yeah, a lot of people here argue that basically now the third president in a row um, has demonstrated that the US is no longer willing to be the world's policeman. Um, I think from a European or for Europeans, that doesn't mean that the US is retreating from NATO or from Europe, but I think that yeah, we Europeans need to get used to the fact that European security is not top on the US priority list and that many of the problems that we've seen under Trump and now under under Biden um, are structural and kind of not, I mean, of course, a lot depends on the personality of the president, but but still that, um, I mean, it was, it was uh, kind of quite telling for Europeans that the Biden administration was willing to alienate an important European partner, namely France, to, yeah, to advance a specific strategy. And a colleague of mine had um, kind of said it's time to wake up for the Europeans and to smell the post-American coffee. So I think in NATO and in other formats like the EU, Europeans need to be more capable to provide good for their own security. They need to have better capabilities. They need to um, invest more um, and spend more money in defense. Uh, they need to take over more of the conventional deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Russia and just make bigger contributions. And I think that is fair. That doesn't mean that we cannot work with the United States, but I think we are not. I mean, it's, it would also be false to say that we are aligned on each and every single kind of foreign policy issue. So, right. So on, on kind of the same, uh, subject, would a European army be a viable option with kind of the U S the U S is slow withdrawal from all of its points of influence in the world. Well, I'm not a big fan of the idea of a European army uh, because I think it's um, kind of one of those ideas that people like because it's always just behind the horizon. Um, so looking at um, yeah, support for this idea across Europe, um, you find many member states where this idea just doesn't fly. And what I think is more attractive is the idea um, of an army of Europeans. Um, and that's what our former defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, who's now president of the European Commission, has brought forward. So it's about European interoperability. Can European nation states, uh, can, can their armies uh, work together? Um, are they interoperable? Um, how can we, can we align our forces better? Um, so for me, it's more about cooperation then about basically a, a single European army, because then the question would arise, who, who is in charge of that army? Who should basically be, be in control and who should... Right. And, and I don't see uh, the EU, um, the commission or yeah, an institution on the EU level in a position to, because we're not integrated in, in security and defense policy and then to, to be basically commander in chief, I don't see that. Okay. So, so do you see kind of, uh, for the, for the future of, of Europe in terms of, of their military for just more cooperation and a, a wider network between different armies? 
Yes, that's that's what I see. And you see that already now. So, for example, the Germans cooperate quite closely with the Dutch. Um, and there, um, there are also certain um, degrees of integration, actually, um, of so close interoperability that one part of the um, respective army cannot function without the other. So this happens already. And I see I see our future more in yeah, more cooperation and different um, member states working together better than in one basically integrated EU army. Okay, awesome. Thanks. So the EU, especially Germany and Eastern European states, are extremely reliant on Russian gas. Is there a way to reduce this dependency? And do you think that it impedes on European sovereignty? Well, um, I'm not a big fan of the Nord Stream 2 project that Germany had been um, advocating for, and that has led to a lot of transatlantic turbulences, hiccups, and um, yeah, a big stress test for the relationship. But overall, I think this is not the future of the European Union. The European Union, um, especially with regard to its climate policy, is um, aiming to reduce its uh, carbon footprint and to become less dependent on fossil um, energy in the future. So there is definitely um, the idea to, um, yeah, to, to to change um, our energy supplies towards more uh, renewable uh, energy sources. Right. And this this change would also, I guess, allow uh, all these states to kind of reduce their uh, their dependence, right? Yes, of course. I mean, um, this dependency is, um, I think, uh, well acknowledged and also seen as a problem um, by many right. member states, not necessarily all the time from my uh, member state, Germany, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think, so the EU is right now setting itself up for, um, yeah, with the, with the EU Green Deal and the um, kind of the, yeah, the preparations for to, to, to become um, a, yeah, a sustainable uh, union and, and very ambitious uh, climate goals. And also the new German government is focused on this. So I hope that we will see progress there in the future. Right. And uh, do you think that Germany and France uh, can make the European Union a cohesive geopolitical bloc? Because I guess they're the, they're the two biggest uh, geopolitical entities are the two most powerful ones in the block. So do you think they can make a cohesive block that rivals that of the United States and China? We talk a lot about uh, European sovereignty um, in Europe, um, but I think European sovereignty, how I understand it, should not lead to the EU being a third pole, um, kind of being basically non-aligned or um, yeah, okay. b- being indifferent about its partners. So I think um, for the Europeans, it's still quite clear um, that they share many interests with the United States and they are much closer with the United States than with China. Um, and especially during the COVID crisis, um, 
the dependency on China has been um, has become very um, visible, and uh, even ordinary citizens realize this when we um, had this shortage of uh, masks and medical equipment. And right. so, I think more and more people in Europe are aware um, that our China policy needs to change, and that kind of our our original hope that China would um, change and would become more like the West. Um, yeah. It did not um, it did not materialize. So right. I think what we see in Europe and in Germany certainly is a changing discourse on China. But also, of course, ever since um, President Trump was elected, also um, a certain worry um, with regard to the transatlantic relationship, also looking at the 2024 election in, in the United States. So there is um, there is this idea to make the European Union um, a more independent pole, um, more self-reliable, okay. but that doesn't mean, like this idea of European solidarity doesn't mean to become independent or doesn't mean to, it doesn't mean autarky. It means to be able to manage um, asymmetric dependencies and connectivity better in a, in, a, in a very connected world. And the EU will remain a strong advocate for multilateralism. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not strategic autonomy, doesn't mean strategic autarky, it means to, to remain well connected. And we know um, that with the United States, then we have many things in common. So should the EU then uh, interfere as little as possible in this a growing conflict between the U.S. and China? No, I think that is um, impossible. I think it's impossible to stay neutral. Um, I think that's what many Europeans tried for a long time, to sit on the fence and right. to have it both ways and to have close cooperation with both sides. Um, but certainly there is um, the wish in Europe that this confrontation between the US and China does not totally escalate. Um, so because, um, yeah, because... That, that is not, um, I think, not feasible for, from a European perspective. Um, we always uh, talk about um, our fear of decoupling. So that's something right. um, that that um, Europeans don't think it's uh, in their interest. But I think the pressure on the EU is, is mounting um, to take sides um, in this um, competition. And... Yeah, you've seen this, for example, with, with Germany just recently. The Germans have sent a frigate uh, in the Indo-Pacific um, for freedom of navigation, patrolling um, exerciser. And um, because there were many concerns in Germany not to offend the Chinese, basically the idea was to, to land in a um, Chinese um, port in, in Shanghai. And so the Chinese um, didn't give their permission. And it becomes, I think... It, more and more clear that yeah this kind of sitting on the fence is no longer an option but still i think the, what europeans want is not to be a vassal and not they are right. they, they want to be a player not a plaything. gotcha so earlier on you mentioned the german elections once angela merkel ends her last term how could a new german leader change the european landscape do you think that a pro-European Germany is needed to ensure the safekeeping of the European project? I 
don't dare to imagine an anti-EU leader uh, at the German helmet. So, but uh, fortunately, there is nothing to worry because um, all of the candidates um, have been very pro-European, and I think. Right. When it comes to um, Germany's orientation, uh, foreign policy orientation, and also kind of general orientation, uh, the, the, the deep integration into the EU is always um, included. So it's not put into question. The only party that puts it into question is the right wing AFD in Germany, which is a kind of a, a French party. And so it's part of our foreign policy consensus to, to be pro-European. Um, and of course, Germany has a tremendous influence on, on the EU level, which is not so much only dependent on the personality of the chancellor. I mean, Angela Merkel certainly had a very decisive influence because she was basically a deal maker or a broker. She could bring um, people to the table and negotiate no not long nights until a compromise was found. But um, also, the next German chancellor will have, by definition, uh, a big influence on the EU level because um, most of Germany's power is structural. It's our economy, it's our size, it's kind of um, it's uh, geography uh, because it's, Germany's in the heart of Europe is very much um, intertwined with um, other European member states. So. Germany, Germany's power in the EU is structural, but of course, the new chancellor will make a difference. And I think that we will see a lot of continuity, um, a, a lot of, right. um, so there is no sense for disruption in Germany and maybe an even stronger emphasis on EU integration coming out of a possible new traffic light coalition. Okay, awesome. Thanks. And so with the, the recent fall of the Afghan government, do you expect that in the future European nations together or individually will be less willing to intervene outside their borders and kind of, I guess, like the United States will be less willing to use their, use their military, use economic force to impose will on another country? So there is certainly intervention fatigue in Germany, uh, no doubt about this. Um, and also looking at the balance sheet of recent interventions, be it Afghanistan, but also Libya, be it the US intervention in Iraq. Um, none of these uh, interventions is basically a success story. So Germans and Europeans, I think, are very well aware of this. And in the broader population, there is a degree of skepticism whether military interventions um, yeah, can 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 bring about change, uh, positive change. But right. that said, I think it's not a, a question of choice. It's also a question of necessity. You know, on September um, two thousand and and one, nobody I think was imagining to have that kind of the the, the Western armies would stay twenty years in Afghanistan. So, and I think. Um, so what I what I'm sure of is that crises in our neighborhood will continue um, to yeah, to escalate um, just because the overall security situation around Europe, um, right. the region where I live, is increasingly unstable, um, and I think that things like climate change, for example, will make um, things worse and will. Uh, lead to less an even less stable European periphery. 
So I think that the pressure on the Europeans to do something about this and to uh, yeah to to also intervene uh, will not go away overnight. So although I think um, for the foreseeable future, um, military means um, will be treated or handled with more care, also that um, a bit better. Uh, a kind of assessment what you can achieve with military means or, or and what right. not um, will certainly um, be a result of the Afghanistan experience, but I, I wouldn't rule out um, military interventions for the future. I think that is, um, I think that is, as I said, not a matter of choice, but of necessity and political reality. And uh, so do you think that future interventions will be uh, more, as a, as a group, the European Union itself with different armies cooperating or individual like uh, France's involvement in Africa? Um, I think, so NATO's appetite to do um, crisis management is certainly, let's say, underdeveloped um, uh, currently. Right. But, um, but still, I mean, the NATO uh, alliance is um, currently in the process of writing a new strategic concept and crisis management will remain one of NATO's uh, core tasks. And the idea to train and equip partners, I think, um, will also prevail. So, and in an EU framework, we're just writing um, the strategic compass, not the strategic concept, um, but right, both right. processes are more or less parallel. And there is one entire basket dedicated to EU crisis management. So I think the EU and NATO will remain actors, but you're certainly right um, with what you indicated in your question that in the future, I think we will uh, see more flexible alliances and more uh, coalitions right. of the willing and able. So some member states, you mentioned France with, with uh, the Tacuba uh, operation. Um, and so I think because the necessity will remain and because the institutions react um, slowly and may, might not develop the willingness, we will see uh, more coalitions of the willing, I think. All right. Well, uh, Jana, thank you very much for your answers and for agreeing to come on. Uh, they helped me understand a lot more on European Union's place in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. This has been episode four of Perspectives with guest Jana Puglierin and host Josh Hillman. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes.